0: We'll be Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. It's Friday, which means we're talking about local news which went under the radar. Sue O'Connell of the South End News and Bay Windows is here. Peter Katzis of the Boston Phoenix has brought his local stories to the conversation, and Gin Dumptious from the Dorchester Reporter is also with us here in Studio 3. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. Um got to start with you, uh, Gin. This is a interesting piece of uh, definitely on the radar for me. So, the federal government is saying they will not help to fund uh, a piece of the Neponset Greenway that would be very important to a community um, over your way.
1: Absolutely. This is, this is also the second time they've been uh, passed over for these funds. Uh, they went for something called the Tiger Grant. Uh, this is the State Department of Conservation and Recreation. It's about, a, you know, uh, about a – they're looking for – they were looking for $12.4 million from the feds uh, with an additional couple million from the state. And they really had their, their hope set for this. and activists were, were really going for it. They feel that especially the Mattapan portion of, of this Greenway trail uh, that they're trying to build, uh, they feel you know, it's the, the community feels neglected. They feel they, they you know at the very least deserve this um, uh, trail, this benefit. And, uh,
0: let me let me interrupt you and just to say that it would have paid for uh, a completion of the trail from right. South Boston to the Blue Hills, and it also, this to me is really important, included a pedestrian overpass at the M- uh, Mattapan MBTA station and a bridge connecting Boston and Milton. Those seem so community based, and isn't this the kind of stuff that this piece of the government funds? So why? Why didn't they get the money? Just, i just—I mean, I know there's yes. lots, of pe- lots of people competing <laughs> for it, but this is just so obvious on so many levels.
1: Well, that's what uh, DCR <laughs> Commissioner uh, uh, Lambert uh, uh, told us. He said there was a high volume of uh, requests, and you know, he didn't rule out going for for uh, a future uh, piece of the funding uh, or future round of funding. But he uh, he expects now for the state to tackle this piecemeal, which you know, uh, the, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The wheels of state government <laughs> turning slowly, so you know it, it could be it could be quite a long time before we actually see this come to fruition, uh, which is again you know deeply disappointing to activists.
0: Well, you know, Sue, so the the thing about the state, aside from the fact that we know that about the wheels turning slowly, mm-hmm. is, as as uh, Guinness said, is that the state didn't have any money.
2: Yeah, and I, you know <laughs> I mean. what what I question, I, you know, I get that you apply for these things and it's mm. how many other people apply and I'm sure everyone who applied had a good story to tell about why they deserve the federal funds, but what what about all the shovel ready talk that mm. we've had for the past few years? And you know, we keep hearing that there's no such thing as shovel ready anymore that it's about technology and it's about job development, which is true, but at the same time, you know, we hear about how our bridges are falling apart, how our roadways need to be fixed and here 's a perfect example that I think you know as you as you stated, Kelly hits all the high points you know it it benefits everybody, It benefits the commuters taking you know that part of that that way into town instead of being on the expressway. it benefits the train commuters it 's good, it connects communities together. Um, why isn 't this shovel ready, and why doesn 't this qualify for federal funds?
0: because it can be immediately used, Peter, so it 's really quite puzzling
3: oh i don 't think it has much at all to do with the um Quality of the project. Um, I think it has a lot to do with seniority and the fact, Ah. and more important than seniority, the fact that the Democrats are a minority party. You know, um, if this were 20 years ago when Joe Moakley was still in Congress, you know, there'd be as much paving on the green way as you want it. I really do. I think a lot of it has to do, well, as everyone is recognized, the, the, the principal reason is money is tight. But when money is tight, the, the, the party that's in power, the Republicans have more of a hammerlock on it. And um, face it, um, the, the representation from that area, while very strong, just doesn't have the seniority that it had years ago. So I say, once again, it's nasty politics or the, hmm. the lack thereof. Well, that's depressing.
0: Well, maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I usually am. <laughs> this may be a case where people need to hit up uh, Senator Scott Brown because it's very local. It's kind of sort of white in his wheelhouse, and mm-hmm. you know, it's all it, it does up many things that he's in favor of, including the the shovel readiness part yes. of it. So, anyway, maybe that's a that's something we'll see in the future. Start to Cali. Well, I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> no, no, very, it's got I, Scott I, I Brown written all over it. <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, this has been an ongoing issue, Sue, the whole bio lab oh, yep. concerns by yep. the community. Uh, but it seems to me that in this discussion that was uh, brought together by uh, City Councilor Charles Yancey, that it was ratcheted up a notch. I mean, I think in the past we've thought of this as. Somewhat kooky activists. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, you know, there were some scientists here. There were some city council. This is, this is really bringing up some information that a lot of people don't want to think about. It
2: is. Charles, uh, city Council Charles Nancy and others have have been convening meetings, and you know. Again, this is one of those issues of sort of beating your head against the wall in that it's a done deal. You know, there's not a lot we can do about the Boston University Biolab, which is going to have uh, contagions that are of, I think, level four is the highest. They've got uh, the Biolab has a number of safeties built in. It's the best of the best. It's also right in the middle of the city you know we can look at it in a um a part of the south end which is not necessarily the high end part of the south end but anyway you slice it it's right next to the expressway it's right in the heart of the city um and the fears have been just justified i think in that it's it's not the the uh, the hardwire stuff that we're concerned about, but the people, the people mm. that work there. And as someone once said at one of the meetings, uh, you know, you have uh, something like NASA, which has the most psychological testing there can be on astronauts, and you had an astronaut put on a diaper and drive across the country to try and kill her, her supposed <laughs> lover's true. wife mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, we're feeling the effects of a a, a, a a project that was rushed through without the proper work done on it. People still feel that this was not given its full hearing. And uh the BU Biolab folks have been doing catch-up ever since. This has been an issue for years. Mm-hmm. And as we get closer and closer to the actual uh opening, if you will, of the Biolab, people are still on record and still want to be, be heard, f- trying to get... S- I mean, there's not much they can do here, which is the sad part about it, but continue to convene meetings and try and just inch out safety and inch out information as they can. And as you said, this is something that people viewed as just the crazies in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. who are concerned about it. But the more they get to know about this, 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 bio lab right in the middle of the neighborhood and right in the middle of the city, it's, it's concerning to them, but the horse has already left. Well,
0: let me just point out that uh, one of the scientists that uh, spoke at this recent uh, hearing that was brought together by City Councilor Charles Yancey spoke about the fact that and it was in a similar lab where the mm-hmm. SARS... Um, that was that flu epidemic that was worldwide right. that was killing people right and left, you know, came to be. And another raised the point that most recently in the last six months, remember, they came up with mm-hmm. some virus that nobody had ever seen before. Right. And said it was contained in the lab, but. It was an error. And
2: as someone said during the hearing, hey, once it's out there, it's out there. And, what, and when I was in for you one time uh, a while ago, we had folks in from both sides of the biolab and the issue, a caller called in and said, well, why don't you have it in the middle of the country where nothing is? Yeah, and, why don't they? And they said, because we can't attract scientists of the uh, level that we need, uh, you know. So mm-hmm. um, on one hand, you've got the proponents saying, well, if they cure cancer in the biolab in the South End, we'll all be having a parade. You know, so it's not a really black and white issue here if it's good or it's bad. But, again, the process of how it was rushed through continues to make the community distrustful and upset about the bio lab being put in. And,
0: Peter, uh, something I wanted to point out that I thought was uh – I had not heard before in this hearing. Again, uh, Yancey asked the question about what kind of training is in place for a response, an emergency response, training of Boston Fire Department. These are issues I had not heard before. Seems quite reasonable for city councilors to be asking that question. And if it's going to be here in a done deal, as Sue has said, Peter, seems like these things need to be put in place.
3: No, Yancey raised a very good point. I I I have to say that I was early on. Um, I subscribe to the theory that oh, everyone's making a lot out of nothing. But the closer that this comes to, you know, actually swinging into operation, it's a good point. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, I'm exaggerating, but sure, let's let's cook up some bubonic plague. Uh, by the way, about two two miles from where I live, um, mm. it is unsettling, and you know what plans, what emergency plans, not just how are the firemen trained, what evacuation plans, how many schools are nearby. Um, There's a lot that's contingent with this. Uh, Although we could ask ourselves, uh, the late Senator Ted Kennedy was instrumental in bringing this here. And Ah. when I really start worrying about it, I mean, and this might be naive or might be uninformed, I, I really wonder, you know, would good old Ted put something that has this in our backyard.
2: Well, let me put a fly in the ointment, too, a little bit. On the, We get really concerned about this terrible thing that could happen but is unlikely to happen. But the activists are not really paying attention to the crime that continues to rain, mm. <laughs> you know, goes up in the Mattapan area and in the South End and in mm. Roxbury. Mm. So, yes, if something bad happened, it would be cat- catastrophic. But the odds of it happening are very low. But the same activists could be putting more energy or the energy they have right now into actually trying to make things better for folks in the neighborhood. So... Again, you want to weigh in on this? Sure,
1: absolutely. I, th- I think it's also another case of, of Council Yancey uh, providing some oversight. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I know he, he drives some of his colleagues crazy in City Hall, mm-hmm. but, you know, uh, sometimes when he convenes these kinds of hearings, you know, you, you pick up new stuff or, or you you hear stuff that, that normally just doesn't get out there because of, you know, secret meetings or whatever that the city council got in trouble for a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I, th- I think he's per- performing uh, a good service there that, that he sometimes catches flack for. Yeah, no, I it
3: po- in, Go ahead, Peter. St- I was just going to say, a city councilor's job is to drive people crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it, is to, it is to bring up the inconvenient. And I will say that, you know, Councilor Yancey is very good at it, but he deserves uh, our thanks for doing this.
2: And I have to say, I think that Councilor Yancey in the past year – has really turned the bend on the type of issues that he is focusing on. Mm. You know, I mean, I've Mm. been, as long as he's been in office, uh, as long as I can remember, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I've taken him as seriously as I have in the past 12 months. And I don't know if it's a change in his his point of view, or if there are people in his office who have really started to educate him on some issues. But he has really, in my estimation at least, turn, turned a corner and taking on some more serious issues that need to be to be vetted. And uh, to put a button
0: on this, he's not the only one opposed to the lab, no, uh, to no, Jackson no, no, no. and Ayanna yep. Others have expressed it, but uh, we're making the point here that just to take this hearing to go a little deeper about some other issues related to it, even as, as yep. we know that it's going to happen, was just something that we were not aware of. But to Peter's but, you know, point too about yeah. the
2: re- the reaction, I mean there was a fire a few years ago in the building where the bio lab was going and yeah. it was not treated well. You, you know, go. I mean it didn't so, you know, these mm. these little tiny issues which could Can be come major big. problems. Right.
0: Well, I'm Callie Crossley. We're looking at local news that went under the radar with Sue O'Connell, with Gin Dumches and Peter Katzis and the conversation continues on 89.7
4: WGBH Boston Public Radio. funding for our programs comes from you and Blake and associates attorneys focused on individual matters, individual advice and individual solutions. They listen they understand the issues you face when assisting a vulnerable loved one. more info at blakelaw.com and it's your Move Inc a move management company specializing in the planning, orchestrating and execution of moves for senior citizens, helping families sort through and organize treasures collected over a lifetime. it's your move Inc.com.
5: The University of Missouri system has been trying new ways to cut costs.
3: It's thought that, well, if we bring in corporate leaders, that they will know best how to do this. And I don't think that that's always the case.
5: Now the University of Missouri press is being phased out.
3: What
6: they would be doing is killing a
1: 54-year-old publishing company.
5: Balancing the needs of scholarly publishing and a university's tight budget. Today on All Things Considered from NPR News.
4: This afternoon at 4 here on 89.7 WGBH.
3: Visit WGBH.org right now and you can enter to win a trip for two to England where you'll visit High Clear Castle. Known to viewers all over the globe as Downton Abbey from the hit Masterpiece series. Prize includes round-trip flight on Lufthansa, four-night luxury accommodations, and a private tour of High Clear led by Lady Carnarvon herself. Afternoon tea included. But act fast. The contest ends on June 29th. Visit WGBH.org to learn more. Will summertime slow down an already sluggish job market? I'm Kara Miller. We check out the state of jobs this week on Innovation Hub, Saturday morning at 7 here on 89.7 WGBH.
0: Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're looking over the week's local headlines that went under the radar. Sue O'Connell is with us from the South End News. Peter Katzis is with the Boston Phoenix. And Gin Dumptious is with the Dorchester Reporter. Uh, back to you, Gen. Um Boy, I tell you, when you talk about uh, civic response, it's always in Dorchester. They're not kidding around,
1: and so plenty of civic groups. Plenty
0: of civic groups, and they they make an impact. And uh, a bunch of them came together and pushed back against a proposed billboard um, that Expressway Motors wanted to put on Morrissey Boulevard. Uh, why? Because i got to say, there's a bunch of other billboards in the general vicinity, so I'm trying to figure out what, what brought this on.
1: Yeah, one, one community <laughs> activist told me there, there's the 25 billboards between uh, Neponset Circle and up to where the Boston Globe is on Morrissey Boulevard. Uh, the, the, the main point is the civic activists feel that, that the, another billboard will be an eyesore and uh, something that they feel that will hurt their home values. And, and uh, they're also convinced that it will go electronic um although the company uh, the company that will, will be leasing the space from Expressway Motors to put up the billboard uh, total outdoor, uh, they said it's going to be a static uh, uh, vinyl uh, uh, billboard, but uh, the, com- the community doesn't believe them and, and they voted uh, uh, against uh, supporting uh, that measure for the in, in front of the board of appeals they have a hearing in about uh, a week or two in city hall. Uh, so it's expected to be a large outpouring of, of opposition to it.
0: Now, they, it's they said that Expressway Motors was looking for a variance because they not only wanted a billboard but they want a double sided one. So that's right. pretty big. I mean, right. bigger but, than big.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I believe uh, I, I wrote about it's going to be about eighty eighty feet tall and about forty eight uh, uh, feet wide. Um, so they're going to need a variance. Uh, the the other thing that has civic activists very concerned is that the state is considering. New regulations, uh, making it easier to put up an electronic billboard, Hmm. uh, something that Governor Dukakis is uh, opposed to uh, the Patriot Ledger reported uh, on these regulations uh, uh, earlier this month. And it's something that civic activists are, are, are very concerned that, the, that all of a sudden all these electronic billboards are going to start sprouting up along, along uh, the expressway and along Morrissey Boulevard.
0: And just to be clear, the opposition to electronic is because it's flashing all night or what? What's that's part the, of it, yeah. yeah. It's, it's,
1: it's just, it's the main, it's going to be an eyesore and, and I don't want to have to look at it when I look out the, uh, my window. Uh, that's, that's the argument.
0: All right. Well, so so Sue is the, is a horse out of the barn on this. How do you stop billboards? Well,
2: I think. Is yeah. this area sort of residential as well as if is, is it over it where is, yes. like D Bar and that part well, of it, it is?
1: It's a, a Clam Point Civic Association yeah. is is the one uh, uh, opposing it. But a lot of I guess there's this unspoken agreement among civic groups uh, that if if one if one civic opposes uh, a billboard, they will all join in and, and, ah. and oppose it.
2: Because I think that the issue here is, you know, from our vantage point on the expressway, it looks just like a business district. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. the area along is is mixed residential as well as and business and commercial. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, where you have uh, the residents just trying to draw the line, that they know that they live there and that they moved into this area or bought into this area, and they want to just say that's enough. And I, I agree. I mean, I think that at some point... The, uh, the, the neighborhood part of it, not just the Papaginos and the, the Dunkin' Donuts and the gas stations, uh, get to have a, a final say on what goes up. So,
0: Peter, I, I agree, too. When I drive down Dorchester Avenue, which my only point of reference in Dorchester, sorry, everybody, I don't know that. You know, I just I, I be, there's so many that I become aware of them, which I don't think is what you want to have happen in anybody's residential space. But at the same time, Peter, don't they bring money into the community?
3: Well, they do. And Dorchester is my old hometown. I I personally have probably a somewhat eccentric point of view. I I consider billboards part of the urban landscape. Um, However, I'm a big believer in neighborhood control. And to my mind, if the neighborhood Draws the line in the sand this time. That's where the line should be drawn. And the, it, it appears the, the community groups are willing to forego the money. So I, I saw sort this of say good for them. You know, power to the people. Power to the residents. <laughs> they should do what uh, they do in
2: Chicago. We were talking about off well, air. They, they put the billboards on the t- rooftops. Mm. right, and on oh. the side of the buildings that the residential buildings that you take from the airport into the city. Right. So oh. if they can elevate the expressway higher, then you, people could sell the top of their houses.
1: That'll go over well. Okay? Oh yeah, <laughs> All right.
0: uh, Well, I should note that State Representative Marty Walsh and District 3 City Councilor, speaking of City Councilors, Frank Baker, have come uh, also weighed in and said they don't want it either because they're supporting the, the civic organization. So there you have it. So, Peter Katzis, while you're talking, let's uh. Talk about this piece that you have in the Boston Phoenix by David Bernstein. And this is something I didn't know. The American Library Association has, uh, you know, supported a resolution to be in opposition of voter ID and other laws that that uh, some of the critics view as voter suppression. Um, we should note that Rhode Island has such a law. Um, And its law is a little bit different in terms of support from the others in the rest of the country in that it has a bipartisan support and uh, persons of color who are elected officials also support that, that voter ID law. That is not the case in many other states. But be that as it may, this is a national organization saying we are saying we are opposed to it. And you just don't think of librarians stepping out that way.
3: Well, first of all, you have to realize that uh, Rhode Island is the twilight zone of American <laughs> politics. So okay. things are a little different down there. But God bless librarians. They're actually a very feisty group. You know, they helped lead the battle against the so called Patriot Act. Right. They're they are fierce protectors of, of privacy, the privacy to read what you want, to watch what videos what, that you want, to access whatever information you may need or want online. And this, to me, seems like a natural extension of the democratic, and that's a small d, democratic impulse. Um, no, I, 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 listen, this voter suppression um, movement, which is, with the exception of Rhode Island, really fueled by Republicans is extremely, extremely troubling, and uh, so troubling that it even has mild banded librarians worked up. You know, there was an interesting wrinkle that came out of Pennsylvania. Uh, the, the, a Republican leader in the local legislature down there basically admitted that their voter ID law was aimed at trying to keep Obama from winning the Pennsylvania vote. You know, this is a lot of baloney that the ID law is to protect the sanctity of the ballot. It's to disenfranchise old people, um, recent immigrants, young people, uh, people, by the way, who are likely to vote Democratic.
0: Well, uh, Sue, I kind of see, I mean, I think a lot of people could understand the librarians' involvement in the in opposition to the Patriot Act, because what that act said was if if federal authorities could come into libraries and ask for your history of uh, renting videos or books or borrowing books and they had to give it to them, which, okay, is part of the law, but the part that the librarians pushed against was they couldn't tell you that they had been asked Mm -hmm. to give away your information. So that seems, that's right in their wheelhouse, but when you then talk about voter registration, it certainly has taken place at libraries, but I just didn't think about... Listen, Kelly, I know know. you're
2: a big fan of libraries and a big booster, but you clearly need to spend more time with librarians (laughs) because remember, the thing that you don't want do is have an overdue book, right? Because they're going to come and get you. You don't want to be loud in the library. I still get afraid when I'm in a library if I talk too loudly. I mean, we have occasionally, like once a year, we put the wrong date on Bay Windows or South End News, and the librarian from the Library of Congress calls to yell at us, okay? <laughs> so I, you know, I get they're, they're they're really, really passionate about this, and I appreciate it. But, you know, I, I actually think that we need to blow up all of the the voter registration and voter laws and start from scratch. I, on the face of it, I'm not against voter IDs, but I'm also for making it easier for people to register Mm -hmm. to vote and to vote. You know, if people were able to vote over two or three period, uh, a day period, yeah. if people were able to vote online, if people were able on to the day of. on the day of, mm-hmm. if people were able to register the mm-hmm. day of mm-hmm. their voting, mm-hmm. I mean, then I'd be all for voter mm-hmm. IDs. I actually think IDs are not a bad idea in general, mm-hmm. but it's what's leading up to it. That is the problem. And, you know, we we these little tiny things that are that pick away at our rights. Uh, is, is you know, something that we all need to pay attention to. And I thank God for librarians. you yeah, think
0: it's going to change any of the – locally, uh, any of the behavior here um, by our librarians again? No, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right. Well, moving on. That was just an interesting story about yeah. David Bernstein, which I know a lot of people didn't know. So back to you, Sue. Mm. Uh, all right. So this is a this is a story that seems to have a lot of parents up in arms. Uh, it certainly is a national problem to some degree. But here we are with a, a woman who thinks she can get her son her child into a school that's appropriate for him and can't get a school assignment. No. And those of us who don't have children and are looking yeah. at this from the outside, you know, we just don't get it. There's X number of seats, right? So how come that kid's not in there? <laughs> this school? is little Joshua. You know, <laughs> yes. this,
2: is a, this is one of those stories that we do at South End News once every couple of years. And we probably should just do it once a year because it, it doesn't change. And Peter can, can speak to this at, at length. I think one of the reasons I moved out of Boston and into the suburbs is because I didn't want to have to deal with what school my daughter was going to go to. Mm. I didn't yeah. want to have to worry if she wasn't as bright as it turned out. To- she is, that she was going to test into a Latin school. I just didn't want to deal with the hassle. And here you have the story of little Joshua, whose mother is an activist. She's a single parent. She is exactly the person you would think would be the the engine to get her son to the school that he needs to go to. She fills out all the right paperwork and finds out that she doesn't get any of her choices. And and as our listeners might not know, you, you give a wish list. And then hope that you get picked, your child get picked. You hope that if you have three kids, that they get go to the same school. I mean, it's just a mishmash of how Boston public schools get assigned. It turns out he doesn't get the school that he wants to that she wants him to go to. She's urged to go to a meeting to a, um, a school committee. Well, she, meeting. they didn't get anything. You right, know? Right, yeah, right, exactly. So, I mean, yes. I just want to make it clear that some, yeah. it's
0: just so people are thinking, well, she just didn't get her choice. No, no, she, no, didn't, she didn't get, get anything. anything, and <laughs> she had to go. And if it's a typo,
2: you know, it's 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 a it's a it's an, it, you know and it's just stunning to me that this woman has to do this much work in order just to get her kid an assignment to get him a seat in a in a school and it's it's really the problem you know talk about the 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 unintended consequences you know you try and write a wrong <laughs> as we've been in this in in Boston public schools over and over again you try and write it wrong and you end up making it worse and you have school assignments which are not based on uh any ease in which you can do it now in the the boston school committee has been holding hearings and mm-hmm. holding meetings and really aggressively reaching out to neighborhoods and to parents to have them come to the meetings to work with them to understand how the school assignments are made but it's it's when people talk about why young parents or parents leave Boston. After they become parents, this is one of the main reasons. I mean, Peter, you could talk at. Li- I don't know. Oh, yeah. can-
3: well, yeah, in, let,
0: let, uh, Peter, let me let again get in here yeah. first. Oh, okay. Sure. Well,
1: yeah. I, I think uh, you know, going back to what the school committee is, is doing, what the mayor has said about overhauling the the, the uh, school assignment process. I mean, you can you can overhaul it, but the bureaucracy is still going to be in place, and mm-hmm. mistakes That's like that. Mm-hmm. You know exactly. It, it, it reminds me of that story the Globe had a few months ago where where the a kid got let off at the wrong stop, right, right, and it took uh, forever for the mother to get an apology. Mm -hmm. Again, that that is a bureaucratic problem, not something that can just be done by, by implementing neighborhood schools.
3: Okay, Peter, now... Well, the, the when it comes to school assignments, uh, the Boston public schools are impartial in their incompetence. They can strike anywhere. That's true. <laughs> anywhere at any time. Listen, there are there, there are um, if it's possible to have two Achilles heels, which would really mean the, the Boston public schools have two huge problems school assignment, let's say that's the left-hand problem, and the right-hand problem is uh, the efficiency of the buses. Mm. This last year, the school year that has just closed, has been a disaster. And I can tell you that a number of Boston school committee people have very quietly said to me that they think that the school superintendent, who, by the way, I generally hold in high regard, has really fallen down Mm. on these two departments. And I'm not sure if Mayor Menino realizes just how angry this makes people. I mean, for example, this story of the woman on the south end <laughs> – her, she had no place to send her kid to school. Forget period. about whether yeah, the right. school choice, was right. any good. Right. right. No,
0: no, it wasn't a choice thing. It was yeah. period. period. Um, and I, I, you know, for people who are interested in this, I, they should really read the detailed uh, mm-hmm. uh, sort of round robin story that happened with her. But uh, it's really quite something. And we'll in, in, face in,
3: more in the fall, I'm sure. Yeah. In, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, we will. But it's interesting that City Councilor Conley helped her, mm-hmm. you know, be, show right. up at the meeting and you'll get something. Well, and, you
0: got better than nothing. We got to leave it there yes. right now. <laughs> but I've been talking local news with Sue O'Connell, co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Gen Dumptious, news editor for the Dorchester Reporter. And Peter Katzis, executive editor of the Boston Phoenix. Thanks,
2: you all. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley, and joining me on the line is Michelle Martin of Tell Me More with Michelle Martin, an NPR signature program. Welcome, Michelle.
5: Girl. Oh,
0: wait. Can I say that? Yes, you can. How are you i'm fine and and we're just so happy to welcome you to the w g b h schedule beginning July 9th. You'll be able to hear Michelle Martin at two o'clock following our local news here and it's quite the program. Tell me more. I can tell you for sure well, you would know right I Callie, would know. are you going to tell people that how you would know <laughs> well like not I know only because have we I... been
5: colleagues for <laughs> Former colleagues at um, ABC News, are we, are we still disclosing that? We yes, still we, can do, we can disclose it <laughs> uh, as part of that uh, vast alumni association. And also, you have been a guest on this program until somehow your own responsibilities seem to make it a little harder for you to work us in. But,
0: <laughs> but thank you for. <laughs> well, I just want to let people <laughs> let people know what a treat they're in for, uh, Michelle. You have such a varied and interesting program. Uh, it's a place where there's you've broken some scoops and also just made us aware of so many interesting stories going on in our world. Well, thank you.
5: We, we call it, um, you know, you have to come up with sort kind of short, catchy phrases to try to help people understand what it is that you're trying to do, because obviously we're all kind of competing for space and people's attention. And one of the things that we like to say is that it's the future now. I mean, there are a lot of people for whom the, the, the issues that we cover, people will be like, well, that's my every day. Well, yes, that's the point. It's, it's your every day for some people, but if it is not your every day, our our kind of core principle is that it will be at some time. I mean, I couldn't at at one point in the future, I mean, this country is is, is already very diverse and that diversity is taking on new forms that people haven't even thought about or talked about, you know, within the last couple of years. And then all of a sudden it's upon you. I noticed that you were talking about just a couple of minutes ago about the whole school choice and school placement issue in Boston. Well, maybe the mechanics of that are distinct to Boston and maybe a couple of other jurisdictions where people, you know, bid for for seats. But the reality of going to a school, perhaps across town from where you live, with kids who are maybe different from the kids that used to going with. That's something that a lot of people are living with. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that, and that's one of the things that we talk about on this program. It's all that
0: and the barbershop. People have got to wait to see what that's about. <laughs> You'll be joining us here from uh, at 2 o'clock every day beginning July the 9th. It's Tell Me More with Michelle Martin, and I can say for sure, Michelle Martin is one of the sharpest interviewers in the business. Looking forward to it, Michelle.
5: Well, thanks, Callie. Come back and see us. Don't Alrighty. forget us.
0: Coming up, we enter the time warp by way of a Harvard Square institution. This is WGBH Boston Public Radio.
4: WGBH programs exist because of you. And One Sim Card, mobile voice, text, and data service for budget-conscious international travelers. One Sim Card lets you manage the expense of using your cell phone while traveling in over 200 countries without any commitments. Online at onesimcard.com. And Aviv Centers for Living, committed to providing the rehabilitation care you need for the results you want. Aviv will open a new campus in Peabody in the fall. For more information, you can visit avivliving.org and members of the ralph lowell society these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining wgbh as a public media resource available and free to all wgbh.org slash ralph lowell
3: after struggling with personal demons and being a mediocre pitcher for years r.a dickey has mastered baseball's
2: wackiest pitch the knuckleball he's now a dominating presence on the mound with an
3: 11-1 record on the next Fresh Air, Dickey tells us about dealing with child sexual abuse and turning his life around. His new memoir is Wherever I Wind Up. Join us. This afternoon at 2 here on
5: 89.7 WGBH.
3: It's cool, it's sweet, and it's fun for the whole family. Support WGBH with a gift of just $30 and we'll say thanks with not one, not two, but four tickets to the WGBH Fun Fest coming to WGBH's Brighton Studios on Saturday, July 14th. There's ice cream from your favorite local vendors, awesome kids music, there's even a bouncy house. Secure your tickets online at WGBH.org FunFest. Context Beyond the Headlines issues you want to know more about, stories you'll want to share. News and depth, online at wgbhnews.org.
6: It's astounding,
0: time is fleeting, madness takes its toll. I'm Callie Crossley. We're doing the time warp with film critic Garen Daly. Garen, in a matter of days, a lot of decked out Rocky Horror fans are going to be without a home in Cambridge. This is true.
6: This is true. I mean, I'm actually kind of hopeful that somebody else may pick it up and just move it over to their theater. Maybe the Brattle, maybe the Somerville. I haven't heard about that yet. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's sad. The Harvard Square uh, Theater is uh, closing July 8th.
0: So just for people who don't know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a movie, a cult fan favorite, and it's been played at the Harvard Square Theater, which is closing on uh, July the 8th, for 28 years. Yeah,
6: I think I read someplace with something like 1,500 performances. Uh, it's it was, I think it's one of the longest runs of any movie in the United States
0: and what makes it so special and so interesting i mean it's it's interesting enough that 28 years the same movie's been played on on the weekends but it became a cult favorite because the people who came to see it became part of that experience.
6: And, you know, that's not so unusual with what's going on in a lot of the movie theaters uh, in the United States right now, a lot of the independent theaters. You take a look at Alamo Drafthouse, which is out of uh, Texas, and uh, a chain for people to watch, because that's what they do. They they have created a a series of films which are quote-alongs, sing-alongs, it's interactive, it's part of engaging the community on a different level, which was done 28 years ago with the Rocky Horror Picture Show at the Harvard Square. Um,
0: The Boston Globe, on its website, I went out and asked a couple people just uh, how they were going to uh, think about this. These are interviews with some Rocky Horror cast members. So here's a taste of what was been going on in Harvard Square.
3: And this is 28 years. We've, we've watched people be born. We've, you know, we've, we've like, <laughs> married deaths. I mean, it's every, and that, that common thread is coming here every Saturday night.
1: It's not just the show. It's the experience of it all. Yeah. And
3: it, you can watch the movie
1: at home, and it means nothing. You come here, you watch us. It, it's a whole different experience.
0: So that's what you're talking about. That, and you know what? It's funny because people keep thinking that interactive experience has to be, I guess, digital. Doesn't have to be. No, it, it
6: can be very analog and human.
0: Uh, I mean, the whole
6: thing is, is that you know, breaking it down from someone who has been observing Boston movie theaters for over almost four decades now. This didn't have to happen. Really? This did not have to happen at all. Um, the, In my estimation, the operator of the Harvard Square Theater, which is AMC, which is a, uh, a multi-screen complex, a uh, multi-screen chain, number two chain in the country, out of Kansas, uh, treats their theaters pretty much like they're any place else in the world. Harvard Square, Cambridge, and Boston, and I would say even New England, is a unique geographical area. And one of the problems that I see with the industry right now is that they see everything like widgets with popcorn mm. and they are not looking at the community as a whole or as, as individuals. Harvard Square could support – at least five screens very easily if they had a much better booking policy. They were just throwing whatever films that they had available coming out of the shoot from Hollywood. They weren't doing anything creative. They were doing no any any special marketing. So eventually, the uh, their community started eroding and started
0: going someplace else. Well, to your point, the Rocky Horror Picture Show was already programmed for them by the time they bought it. That's, so that wasn't right. a crea- creative thing from them.
6: Exactly. Ooh. AMC took it over, I think, in 2000 2006 from, I think it was Lowe's. Uh,
0: So, but, you know, now when we read some of the, uh, after reading some of the business reports, uh, some of those folks are saying, well, there's very little parking in Harvard Square. So that's really the underlying reason why AMC says, well, we can't make any money here because people can't park, so they go elsewhere. That's a bunch of hooey. Okay.
6: That's a bunch. Of, I, mean, I mean, literally. I mean, there are plenty of urban theaters. All. I mean, g- excuse me. You want to go to New York? Where's, well, where's, that's true. Where's the parking there? Yeah. Okay. But it's I more mean, part of the
0: culture, you have to admit,
6: it, not it, it to is drive. Part, yeah. It, is, it yeah. is part of the culture. But think about the Lowe's Common, one mm-hmm. of the high, highest-grossing theaters in all of New England. It's not easy to park there. I mean, there is the Boston Common parking lot, but there's also a parking lot in Harvard Square. So that's a bunch of hooey. The fact of the matter is is that the operator of this theater wanted out because they're building a new 14-screen uh. in Somerville's Assembly Square Mall, the same DMA zone in the in, in the film business. And they had a chance to sell it to a big developer, which they did, and they got their money. They were asking... Last I heard, they were asking close to fourteen million dollars, wow. which was very expensive for a movie theater, but not so expensive for a developer who has got deep pockets and is well connected.
0: Well, because I have to say, every time I went there, it was packed. I, 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 I it was packed. I mean, I don't know. I know that's not anecdotal. That doesn't tell you what the, their bottom line is. But I have to say, there are many times I expect them to have a certain film, and I look there, and they don't have it. It's to your point. Something that I would get any place else. So then I didn't go there.
6: Exactly. I mean, if you if, you know. <laughs> if you're gonna have a choice of seeing a brand new uh, film in a you know either 3D or digital or with ter- terrific sound with beautiful sight lights, you're not gonna necessarily go to the Harvard Square. However if you were in Harvard Square and one of your constituencies is Harvard University and the people you know who, who work there that's a very high level of intelligence and a very discriminating taste you could easily show a French film or you could show American independent films or you could do a film series or you could do interesting midnight shows or you could do interesting kid shows they did none of that mm. I mean they just slotted what was coming down the chute out of Hollywood and it's because they are a national chain with thousands of screens, and they do not think about the local community. And again, I will say, Cambridge, Harvard Square, Cambridge, Boston, and even New England is a unique geographical area, and you really do need to serve your community. What's really bad is that this is the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, so I was wondering. That was yeah, the next question. this is the tip. This is yeah. the tip of the iceberg because right now the predictions within the industry is that ten thousand screens or twenty percent of the screens in the United States. Are going to close in the next twenty-four months. This is twenty-four, 24 months. Twenty-four months. This is all about the digital migration. What's happening is, is that the distributors, the people or the studios, have decided that every everyone has to go digital. You have to have a digital projector. They cost seventy thousand dollars per screen. So if you're a small, uh, small little community theater, say in some place in New Hampshire or Maine or Vermont or even in Connecticut or Massachusetts. And let's say you've got three screens, and that's $210,000 to upgrade. That's probably close to your gross per year. So you're not going to see a return on that for like 10 years. You have the option. Do you, do you stay in business or do you go out of business? And right now, I know of at least five theaters in New England that are contemplating going out of business right now. And that's what I just know. Wow. So what we're expecting is 10,000 screens, and most of those screens are going to be small Independent little theaters, community theaters, and some smaller megaplexes.
0: All right. So when we talk about small and independent, I think about the Kendall. Right. uh, How will this impact the Kendall Theater? That's which is also in Cambridge. Well,
6: first of all, Kendall is not an independent theater. I didn't realize that. The Kendall is owned by Landmark Theaters, which is a national art house chain. Now what? I'm predicting, and this is kind of, you don't really know how it's all going to shake out, is that it's not going to really affect the Kendall all that well because the kind of product that they show is first-run art. Mm. However, I think they're going to have the opportunity to show some really good, high-quality first-run Hollywood film. If they decide to do that, and they've done that in other locations, Baltimore being one of them, then I see that some of the smaller art films that they are playing now will slide through the cracks and go to the brattle. Mm-hmm. And, and, which is also in Cambridge. Which is also mm-hmm. in Cambridge and also in Harvard Square. It's the last screen in Harvard Square. It's a small 240-seat independent. If that happens, then I see kind of a new lease on life for the brattle. Because, the, 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 honestly, the brattle has been struggling for years. It's, it's, and it's a question of getting good product. So if some product is starting to slip through, that might be a good new lease on life for the brattle. The other questions are, is what's going to happen to the fresh pond? Because yes. Because that's, that, that's, that, that, I know, is on a month-to-month lease lease that's been on a monthly lease for years Hmm. so they may want to continue because now all of a sudden there is less pressure on them to get product or there is more product available to them also the somerville theater it will be impacted somewhat too but they're also going to be impacted by the fact that the new AMC Theater in Assembly Square Mall is also down the street from them.
0: Well, the Fresh Pond has an aesthetics problem that it's going to have to address if it wants to, I think, pick up some of the audience. The Harvard Square Theater, the AMC Theater, had a certain funky quality inside, right. like the theater upstairs where you could sit in the front row and put your feet down on the thing. I mean, I love that. I mean, but <laughs> I recognize everybody doesn't love that.
6: <laughs> I like that stuff but, too. <laughs> but but
0: be clear, I'm also the one that can go easily to the chair where you order the food and the kind. You know, I'm I'm for that. That too, right. but it was just having the nice mix, and certainly in that location, as as the point that you've made is is so important. So this is really what I would call the mallization, where not just in a movie theaters, but in other, uh circumstances. You see any mall you go to has the exact same stores. There's no specialty. There's no local. There's nothing. And it it's, could be dropped in anywhere, and there's nothing that speaks to the community from which where the people are coming from. Yeah. I, I totally agree.
6: I mean, I call it homogenization. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's all the same. And And guess what? With so many screens closing, the people that are going to survive have to. They're going to have to be able to Find out who their market is and go for it. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that if you take a look at the big chains and they do dominate Mm -hmm. the scene, they've had an erosion of their total attendance since from, from 1996.
0: Is that Netflix and live streaming?
6: You know, it's some of that, but it's it's also the fact that you're charging $4.50 yeah. for a small popcorn. You, you go to, you know, I mean, I like to support theaters, but I don't want to spend $10 on buying a soda that is, like, so large that my glycemic level <laughs> is going to go through through the roof yeah. and I'm going to eat popcorn. that yeah. You know, it's like they, they really have lost sight of what's going on. Now, there is some hope there. I mean, I do believe that there are people like the Coolidge Corner, which is doing a mm. great job of reaching out That's to the community. True. There's the Red River in Concord, New Hampshire, which is awesome. Doing a great job. That's the model that people have to go after, and it's kind of also why I'm making my movie. If I'm shamelessly plug myself here, okay, uh, yeah. I'm, making a, no. I'm making a movie on um, the Orson Welles cinema, ah. which was may which was uh, in its heyday, the art house in the United States. And, and in Cambridge. And in Cambridge. And we're calling it the Once and Future Movie House because we think what they did back in 1969 and 1970, theaters are going to have to do now to be able to survive.
0: So to come full circle, that's where, at one point, Rocky Horror fans found themselves and, exactly. and, and, and did their thing there. Uh, your thoughts on It's Being Picked Up, Rocky Horror, someplace else? I think
6: that if anyone who's a smart booker, and I like to think of myself as being a smart booker, a smart programmer... I would take a close look at the numbers, and if I can create a a comfortable atmosphere, then why not? Why not, why not bring those people, especially if it's a very consistent crowd? The fact that it was still there at AMC, which is not known for its largesse, um, it suggests that it was doing pretty well. So I see that the, you know someone like the Brattle could put it up because they have a stage. I could see someone also like the Somerville Theater because they have a stage. And either one could do well with the film.
0: Uh, I want people just to hear the chorus from the Time Warp, which is a piece of the film that's so iconic. So here we go. Here's the Time Warp from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. So a couple of points I want to make. That's Time Warp from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The people that do the performance in front of the film and sort of reenact, if you will, are, are members of something called Full Body Cast. So they're actually a theatrical group that's been doing this for – the. Uh, low, um, almost I guess the twenty-eight years, um, maybe the whole twenty-eight years. And the other thing is that they're going to do two special showings of the Rocky Horror on the last night before the the theater closes in Harvard Square on July seven, so people can can look forward to that. Um, if the Brattle picks it up, I think that'll be great. The Brattle always does it already does stuff like the Bugs Bunny Festival. That's right. They, so and that's, I mean that's just perfect. I, I think it's a
6: natural <laughs> for them.
0: I do too. Uh, in the interim. I think that you didn't mention the Capitol and the Capitol's in Arlington right. and they're doing a kind of the mix that you're talking about and they seem to be addressing what their community wants as well. So that's a good example of a place hanging on. Again, right? the, the, cap-
6: the Capitol's owned and operated by the same people that own the Somerville Theater. And they have, and they're independents. And they have done a very good job. And they have put the money into their facilities. And they've struggled very, very hard to make sure that the distributors, the people that give them the product, understand who they are. And they've been successful because. If you take a look at what they were playing eight years ago, it was all what is known as subrun stuff. Now they're playing first run, and they're mixing in some art. They do very well with kids' shows. They are definitely addressing their community. So, again, a very good job. in them. And so there is hope out there. I don't want to be completely negative, yeah. but I think we have to be aware. Of, if you're in a small town in, in the listening radius of WGBH, you have to worry about your theater. You really do, and you have to start worrying about it now. So what are you going to do about it? Because otherwise... I see a lot of these places closing, and I see something that that the big chains are not seeing. When these places close, you are losing a segment of your population that will no longer be trained or be uh, acculturated to go to movies. Mm. And, and I see a long-term erosion of the attendees to movie theaters. And they're worried about it now, and the way that they're approaching it is... Not very smart.
0: And why is that important as as a cultural phenomenon?
6: As a cultural phenomenon, I believe it is a cultural center. I believe that you learn. I mean, when I was growing up, and I grew up in a very small town in New England, I got my exposure to French culture, to seeing mm. Francois Truffaut films. And that was great. And I learned a lot about pol- politics by watching Z and Battle of Algiers. These, I mean, movies have a transformative quality. And when you just see the same old, same old Avengers, which I love, you know, you lose something. And I think culturally we lose something. It's like the tree falling in the forest. You don't know it's gone until it's gone.
0: Well, that's why we love you, our film (laughs) contributor, Garen Daly, because you can go from uh, the Avengers (laughs) to the French films. So thank you so much for talking about an end of an era, the last days of AMC Lowe's Harvard Square movie theater. And speaking of endings and new beginnings, this is the last Callie Crossley show. I've had the privilege of hosting this show for two and a half years. It's been a fun ride, sharing a lot of what I'm interested in as well as learning so much. I'm especially proud for having been able to introduce you to a diverse roster of folks from Boston and New England. My great producing team, Chelsea Mers, Will Roslip, and Abby Ruzica, spent untold hours getting the show just right. And you noticed. Thank you for your letters, phone calls, and messages on Facebook and Twitter. It's been a lot. My mother said, when a door closes, a window opens. The door is closing on The Callie Crossley Show, but happily, I'm not going away. I'll be back in two weeks opening the proverbial window, moderating a new live local program called Boston Public Radio. Check us out from 12 to 2 on July 9th. This is The Callie Crossley Show, a production of WGBH.